I'm John Sutton, and on behalf of the Economics Department, I'm here to welcome you to the lecture sponsored by Economica, uh, the journal which is housed at the Economics Department of LSE. Uh, this journal has, in its history, produced many famous articles, but two above all stand out in the history of economics. The famous paper by Phillips that introduced the Phillips curve, and the great paper by Ronald Coase on the theory of the firm, which remains the cornerstone of an entire literature even today. Uh, Coase, like Phillips, was a lecturer in the department when he wrote that seminal paper, and in his honor, Economica founded this pair of lectures uh, which alternate between macro and micro, Phillips and Coase, from year to year. And so it's a great privilege to introduce Jean Tirole as this year's Coase lecturer. Jean Tirole is, of course, one of the giants of industrial organization. By the end of the 1980s, he was pioneering the new field of game theoretic I.O. He wrote the definitive textbook, which became the standard graduate text in the area for well over a decade and remains the standard text today. He went on over the past 10 years to move towards um, corporate finance, where he equally established himself as the definer of a field. Uh, he has, for several years, not only been at the uh, School of Economics in Toulouse, but he has succeeded since the sad death of Jean-Jacques Lafont as the head of that institute and has brought it to a state of great financial stability as well as great academic attainment. And he is nowadays no less respected and admired in the profession for his institution building as he is for his huge intellectual contributions to the field. It's a particular pleasure to have him here this evening. I give the floor to Jean Tirole. Thank you very much, John, for those very kind words. And thank you for the invitation to give the course lecture. Um, the London School of Economics is the reference and has long been the reference for research and higher education in economics and the social sciences in Europe. And I'm very honored and privileged to be addressing you tonight and to give these course lectures. Let me just learn how to use this. Yes. Now, in this lecture, which is based on joint work with Roland Benabou at Princeton University, I would like to discuss a recent trend that calls into question the organization of our society, um, which is traditionally built on the invisible end of the market um, with a pursuit of self-interest, vouching for efficiency, and the more visible end of the state, which is in charge of correcting externalities and implementing redistributive policies correcting externalities like pollution externalities, for example, and redistributing income and wealth because there is no reason why income and wealth generated by the market um, really fits our moral standards. We may want to change it. Now, this is a division of labor on which uh, the political spectrum left and right have converged, of course, with some differences as to the role of the state. Now, two um, economists, by and large, have concurred. Um, if you take the standard economics textbook, um, firms are controlled by their shareholders who aim at maximizing profits. I just realized that I should have turned that on. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, who aim at maximizing profits um, and protect the other shareholders, stakeholders, uh, through fixed nominal claims so as to insulate them against uh, 
consequences of their, of their management. So fixed nominal claim, for example, for workers might be a fixed wage. Um, for, for debt holders might be a fixed debt repayment. Um, and that's complemented by a priority in bankruptcy, severance pay, unemployment insurance, and so on. Another thing that protects stakeholders is exit options. So for example, for workers, the possibility of moving to other firms because they've received general training, a flexible labor market, uh, for debt holders having short-term debt maturity, which allow you to exit the firm when things go wrong. Now, this is complemented by the state, and we have been knowing since PIGU, uh, 1920, that the state uh, is in charge of correcting those market failures and income and wealth inequalities. So that's a basic uh, background behind environmental taxation, antitrust, prudential regulation, network industry regulation, and all kinds of uh, redistributive policies. Uh, the recent trend um, I alluded to um, has been that the societies and lawmakers have, have called to individual, have made calls to individual and corporate social responsibility as an alternative response uh, to market and redistributive failures. So for example, calls to individual social responsibility with individual giving their time and money to good causes and in that sense, if you go back to Adam Smith, it's closer to the theory of moral sentiments than to the wealth of nations. It, of course, has all roots because it was very prominent in ancient Greece. Uh, you remember the Quakers refusing to invest in weapons and slavery in the 18th century, but it has become very prominent today. Empowerment of civil society and the new role of, of NGOs and corporate social responsibility, which is very, very big in the, in the talks by business leaders, lawmakers, government, and, and now academics, um, where the idea of corporate social responsibility is that you sacrifice profit um, in the social interest. Now, you sacrifice a very important word. Um, the basis, it's really on a voluntary basis. So basically, the idea is that the firm goes beyond its legal and contractual obligations uh, basically to be friendly to its employees beyond what is stipulated by labor contracts, friendly to the environment, respectful of ethics, respectful of communities their plants are located in, uh, friend, friendly to investors, supporting the arts, supporting the London School of Economics, the Toulouse School of Economics, and whatnot. Now, why is that that citizens and corporations empower themselves and basically substitute themselves to, for elected government? Now, somehow, somehow the socially responsible behavior uh, may be related to government failures, and there are several causes of government failures. One is that jurisdiction one, it's very, very difficult, for example, to control child labor in some distant country. You cannot directly do that. Another one is capture. For example, a uh, government may be too close to corporate interests. A third one might be all kinds of inefficiencies having to do with uh, um, information, high delivery costs, transaction costs, like in the paper by Beasley and Gattac. Uh, Chavel talk also about the transaction costs and the idea that for certain types of pro-social behavior, so for example, uh, minor, minor nuisances or lending and helping hand, um, it's easier to have that discipline by society than discipline by the state. 
There may be also distortion um, implied by the expre expressive content of the law. Uh, that's a lawyer's uh, jargon, which basically says that the state may be concerned that a tough enforcement of the law may spread bad news about the civic attitudes of the society and therefore may refrain from tough law enforcement in some particular circumstances. Whatever the reason, the fact that the, there are government failures may mean that citizens and corporations may empower themselves to achieve the public good. Another reason, of course, is the promotion of values which are not shared by lawmakers. So it may be the case that there are always people who disagree with lawmakers, and, and that can be quite extreme. I mean, if you think, for example, of a terrorist, this terrorist, and that's obviously not our opinion, but will think that uh, it's basically engaging in socially responsible behavior, and that's basically because uh, he or she doesn't share the value of lawmakers. Now, what I'm going to do in this lecture is basically to draw on recent advances in psychology and behavioral economics to shed some light on this new trend, its future and limits. So what are the benefits and limits of socially responsible behavior, and is this a viable model for the achievement of social goals? Please, please, do not expect any breathtaking uh, insight. The truth is that we, social scientists, and, and I in particular, haven't paid much attention to this very important topic. Um, we have been captured by, by Pigou and, and Smith and with the invisible end and the more visible end of the state. And uh, the best I can do maybe in this lecture is to offer you some thoughts which are, which are going to help you organize your own thoughts or your own thinking about this topic. And here is the outline. Uh, the outline is, I will start with individual social responsibility because we need to understand first what drives individual to engage in pro-social behavior. That's the basic stuff. We, we need to start with individual. Then we move on to corporate social responsibility and the debates and the challenges which are faced by corporate social responsibility. And then we'll wrap up. And the take-home message will be that it's an exciting development Socially responsible behavior, I think, has a bright future, subject to a good understanding of the motivation and limitation. And, and actually, I'm going to spend most of my time on the li limitations, because that's what we have to study if we want this to work. OK, so now I've, I've set the stage. I'm going to start with individual social responsibility. Um, why do why do you believe pro-socially? I mean, just have you ever wondered why in your everyday life you, you sometimes or often behave pro-socially? So you do things which do not seem to be in the best of your interest. Uh, so for example, you might engage in charitable giving. You uh, may practice socially responsible investment. You may consume green goods. Um, you may give your blood. You can do lots of things. And this pro-social behavior, if you think about it, is driven by three different motives. The first motive is intrinsic motivation, the fact that you actually may enjoy, um, you have a desire to do good and to help. That's your intrinsic motivation to engage in pro-social behavior. The second motive, which is clear, is material incentives. So you may, the laws or the taxes may give you some incentive to contribute. And we are all e more eager to give to charities, of course, if it's tax deductible. And the third item, which is the item I'm going to emphasize quite a lot, 
is social and self-esteem concerns. Um, the fact that we try by engaging in pro-social behavior to define with respect to oneself and with respect to others who we are. It's part of our identity. And what I want to, to argue is that there is a key role of self and social image concern with bright and dark sides, which we have to understand if we want to understand pro-social behavior and therefore individual and corporate social responsibility. And then I will derive some implications for policy. Now, I'm not going to convince you, or at least if, you, if it's needed, I want, would like to convince you that what cannot understand social, pro-social behavior if one ignores image concerns, self-image and social image. And let me start with social image. As we all know, anonymous donations are widely considered to be the most admirable contributions, yet they are extremely rare. So if you look at data for museums or, or, or concert halls or universities, typically less than 1% of donations are anonymous. Even so, they are the most admirable. This suggests that we are engaged in pro-social behavior in part to buy social prestige. Um, and it's confirmed by several recent field experiments. I, I just want to mention a couple of those. This Italian blood donation experiment gave medals, medals, bronze, silver, gold, for how often people donated their blood. And there are several interesting observations. The first is that those medals um, had a significant effect, but only when the results were published in the newspapers. The second thing is that, and that's something you will observe in many, in many other circumstances, for example, the arts or the universities, that people bunch. So basically, they give just what's needed to reach that category. And same thing when you give to universities or when you give to the arts, you want to give 500 pounds because 500 pounds gives you to that, puts you in that category. And the statistics are very, very interesting because you really bunch at, at the cutoff, just above the cutoff, of course, not be under the cutoff. You have a huge amount of, of bunching going on. And that's really evidence that, you know, we also, we do that because we have intrinsic motivation to help, but we also do that because we want to buy a social prestige. There is a very interesting experiment in Switzerland. It's a natural experiment where some cantons introduce mail ballots. So to vote, you, instead of going to the voting booth, you could just vote by mail. Um, now, an economist will say, you are going to increase participation in voting. You reduce the cost, at least for some people, it becomes less costly to vote because now they have the option to vote by mail instead of going to vote. And therefore, if you reduce the cost, you increase the supply. That's an economist's reasoning. Um, and that's not what has happened. What has happened is that it has had no effect, basically, in big towns. And in small communities, in villages, and so on, it has actually reduced the participation. So instead of having an upward sloping supply curve for votes, we had a downward sloping supply curve for votes. And that's actually very interesting. And if you think about it, the explanation is kind of obvious, which is um, you made voting or no-show invisible. And that's particularly important in small villages, because part of the reason why you go voting in small villages is that your neighbors see you. You, sh you are showing you're a good citizen. And now, you don't, do, you don't have that anymore because you might have basically voted by mail. And 
basically, we are buying social prestige, and that's important to understand if you want to understand generosity. There are other experiments, uh, volunteer firemen in Vermont, with some activities which are highly visible, like call response, everybody observe that, and some which are no, not very visible, like training hours. And it's very interesting to see who is investing in, in call response and who is investing in training hours, looking at behavior in other areas of life. And I'm not going to go through that, but that basically confirms the general picture. <laughs> now, we behave prosocially because we want to show our families, our friends, uh, other people around us that we are good people, decent citizens. But I think we also behave prosocially because we want to convince ourselves that we are good, decent citizens. And um, that's no news, in a sense. Um, when we, when we are generous, we do it a bit for ourselves, of course, because you know, it gives us a good self-image. But there are some very intriguing facts that I want to relate to you, which are very interesting. Um, and some of those facts have been, have been collected by Dana Weber and Kwong and other people. Uh, this paper on exploiting more regal room. So it's actually true that we want to convince ourselves that we are good people, but actually, it's a very subtle mechanism, and let me show you the experiment they run because it's a very simple experiment. So what they did was basically to start from a standard dictator game. For those of you who don't know what a standard dictator game is, it's a very simple game where you put someone in a laboratory in front of a computer. And you, you give this person a choice. And it's completely anonymous. It's actually done in a very nice way which is that nobody know, including the experimenter, nobody will ever know what this person will have chosen. So there's no question of buying social image there because nobody will ever know what the person chose. I mean, I'm not going to go into the technical details of how you do that. You are sitting in front of your computer and you have to choose between A and B. And nobody will ever know what you, what you have chosen. So A, if you choose A, you will get six pounds for yourself. And somebody else in the room, or outside, another LSE student, uh, will get one. If you choose B, you'll get five pounds for yourself, and this other person who you don't know, this is a fellow student, uh, that's all you know, uh, will get five. So basically, A is a selfish option, which dominates for you from your point of view because you get one pound more. And B is a generous option where you you basically share a bit with the other person. Now, I'm not going to ask you, especially in public, what you will be choosing, <laughs> but you know, probably three-fourths of you will be choosing A. You're choosing B, I'm sorry. You'll be choosing B. <laughs> uh, you, you will be choosing B. Uh, basically, uh, you say, OK, I'm losing one pound, but I feel so good after that. And, you know, I feel like a good person. Uh, I'm being generous. The other person is going to gain four pounds. So I'm going to choose B. I'm going to be generous. And that's exactly what happens. And I want to emphasize that's pure self-signaling. Nobody else will ever know. You're in front of your computer. There's a sophisticated system of envelopes so that nobody will ever know. You'll get your six or your five pounds, but nobody else will, will never know what you have chosen. Now, here is the interesting experiment by Dana Weber and Kwong. Um, they change a little bit this uh, experiment and say, well, actually, there are two states of nature, equally likely. 
In the first state of nature one, it's just like before. So you have a selfish choice, which is A, and the generous choice, which is B. But there is a second state of nature, two, in which the choice is very simple. If you choose A, you get six, and the other person will get five. If you choose B, both of you will get less. So there's not really a choice there. It's pretty clear that you should be choosing A. Now, standard decision-making says, well, if you offer the following choice, do you want to know the state of nature before choosing between A and B? In principle, you should be choosing you should be choosing to know the state of nature because clearly in that state of nature you want to choose option A and if, if you are really generous in that state of nature you should choose option B. However, half of the people, including lots of the people who choose otherwise B, choose, choose not to know. And lo and behold, they select A. Okay? So that tells us something about our generosity um, because, and that, I'm sure you'll think of real-world example in which you really don't want uh, to be facing confronting a situation in which you um, will, f will be basically compelled or self-compelled uh, to be generous. So we choose to be generous when we are confronted with an opportunity to be generous, but we don't want to be confronted with an opportunity to be generous. And I will come back to that because it's, it, is, it is very important. And that tells you something about the games we are playing with ourselves. Another ex experiment which is interesting and amusing, I will say, is by Dan Ariely and his co-authors on, um, you, you have an experiment in which you, you can perform a task, and then you ask to say how many good answers, right answers you, you got. But it's a self-declaration, so you, you say, you know, 10 on the computer. But nobody will ever check. So that's a test of honesty, right? Are you going to report the number of right answers to the questionnaires? And of course, if it's for money, some people cheat, some people tell the truth, there is an heterogeneity. But what's true is that people cheat less when they are first made to read the Ten Commandments or the LSE universe uh, honor code. I don't know if you have an honor code at LSE, but um, U.S. universities have an honor code. So you read to them the Ten Commandments or the university honor code before the experiment. This is pure cheap talk. It should have absolutely no influence whatsoever. And yet, yet people cheat less. And that, you know, the reason why they cheat less is, of course, that they are reminded. And if they cheat, it will be more salient somehow. They will tend to remember they have cheated, right? So if, and it's contrary to their principles. And that's why actually they behave in that way. So that means our generosity is actually very, very, very subtle. Okay? So what we take out of that is that there is self-deception. Ambiguity favors it. That's the Dana Weber and Quang experiment. Reminders reduce it, and that's the Ariely, Mazar, and Amir experiment. Let me. Um, now, we are driven, so we are driven by three motives. The first is um, this um, intrinsic motivation. After all, we do want to do good for society. The second is material incentive. We get paid to do that. For example, we may be paid to, to give our blood. We may get a tax deduction when we give to a charity. And the third motivation is 
we are buying self and social image. We are buying both at the same time. And it has, of course, this self or social image, of course, as a bright side, which is that we can, policymaker can cheaply lever image concern to increase pro-social behavior. And there are numerous examples numerous example of that. On the positive side, you might want to induce honor-seeking. So you give honors, medals, t-shirts, uh, best of rankings, course lectures, uh, I don't know. You, 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 you give you know, nice, nice rewards. And on the negative sides, um, which is more controversial, you may want to induce stigma avoidance. And in the US, you have had this, uh, this this coming back of uh, you know internet wall of shame for drunk while intoxicated no driving while intoxicated <laughs> uh, arrest uh, non-payment of child so it's on the website it's on TV basically uh, you are made it's a pillory version it's a new, new version of the pillory there are some amusing uh, outcomes uh, like uh, the graffiti of the philanthropic class I mean this is the Shakespeare Theatre Company uh, in Washington. Every, every, basically every piece has, has a name um, here. Uh, you know, even the closet has a name. And, you know, restrooms, I don't know. Everything has a name. You know, you get your plaque, and your, your, you know. So you get lots of money that way, and actually, probably it was cheap. I'm not going to make any jokes about Mr. Old, but uh, we donated this theater, but. Uh, this is actually, uh, actually, you're, you're not using very much uh, donations here to, you're We're working on that. You're working on that. <laughs> okay. Okay, well. Just, we have to discuss that, but this is very interesting. Of course, you know, this, this is actually a good outcome, right? I mean, you, you get people to get their names on the door, and, um, and then you, you finance your Shakespeare Theatre company that way. Okay? Um, so it's not as easy as it looks. I mean, just creating honors, uh, making things very visible, public, is not going to, uh, to have always full strength. Because as visibility publicity is scaled up, uh, the people start discounting and attributing more of the motivation to image seeking. So if things um, become extremely public, people start inferring that people do because they are trying to buy self-image, are pro-social because they want to buy self-image, not because they are intrinsically generous. Um, and that's what psychologists would call a form of over-justification effect, which is, you know, you start, you start wondering why the person did it. And if, you know, if it's very prestigious and very public, then you, you wonder whether the person is really being very generous or buying social image. Um, so the more, for example, socially responsible investment is advertised, the more it will be discounted. On the darker side, and this is actually very important, on the darker side, giving or investing is heavily distorted towards the more visible and memorable targets. Okay? So for example, the overwhelming evidence is that you give to Harvard, Princeton, your alma mater, but very little to primary and secondary education. That's not glamorous. Uh, I mean, here it's in the case of corporate giving, but you could say the same thing for individual giving. Uh, individuals give to concert halls, to museums, not to the poor, not to education. And that's a criticism which has been raised by many people, including Robert Reich. 
Similarly, that distorts the kind of purchases that people make. We are more tempted to buy an hybrid car than to insulate our house. Even so, in terms of CO2, it may be more efficient to insulate your house. But of course, a car, you show it to your friends. You know, you can brag about here. It, insulating your house is not very visible. Similarly, you know, buying a solar panel, everybody will see it. Um, it might be more efficient to buy an efficient furnace, but nobody will see it. It's in your basement. Nobody will ever know. And that basically distorts the kind of choice you make when you try, for example, in that case, you want to basically fight against, you fight global warming, and which is a good thing, but of course you are going to distort your choices in favor of what's visible because, of course, part of your motivation is your social image. Another point you should make if you want to understand pro-social behavior is image-seeking or, um, or self-image enhancement is a zero-sum game. So sociologists will call that a positional good. So if you buy a Prius, you look better, you feel better, but it makes your neighbor look or feel worse, right? Doesn't have a Prius, I mean, a polluting car, it's bad. Um, and the other Prius buyers, of course, feel, feel bad too because you are buying one and there is less prestige attached to it. So you can see on this diagram, imagine that you have a range of people in your economy which are which have different intrinsic motivation. There are people who really want to do the social goods. That's the first motivation, and some people less. So what's going to happen in equilibrium is that uh, the people who are most motivated, intrinsically motivated, will participate in contributing to the public good, to the pro-social behavior, and the people who are less motivated will abstain. And of course, in terms of image, that means that if you participate, you are sort of as being in this range, so you get the honor of being among the people who have high intrinsic motivation. And if you don't, oops, no. if you don't participate, then you are among those, those people um, who are not very motivated, and you get a stigma from that. And when participation increases, so when one more person buys a prius, um, the honor decreases because, you see, it's less prestigious. You get those people who now participate. So the honor decreases, but the stigma increases because um, those people were actually good people relative to those ones disappear. They've purchased the hybrid car. Um, so basically, when you have more participation, the honor decreases and the stigma increases. But this is very much of a zero-sum game. Uh, you are buying reputation at the expense of others. Okay. Um, let me, let me go on with, um, oh, by the way, before I move on, um, there's some indirect evidence that um, this is a zero-sum game, or at least people perceive it to be a zero-sum game. There is, for example, extensive evidence on backlash against moral rebels, i.e. those who restore our faith in human nature. So psychologist Benoit Monat at Stanford has a number of experiments where he shows that People don't like other people who behave well. <laughs> yeah, they don't, especially if they themselves don't behave well. So, uh, all those experiments, you know, show that um, people who are nice, when the majority of people are not nice, actually there's huge backlash. It can be distancing. In some cases, 
lots of uh, lots of real cases. It's beaten up. People have beaten up on on on, on other people who are too nice socially. Um, and there is a lot of evidence for that. So they really perceive that it's a zero-sum game. Someone is being nice. I'm really upset about it because, of course, this person is buying social prestige at my expense, and I look bad. Okay? And there is a lot of evidence in psychology which shows uh, just that. Um, Mona has also done experiments uh, basically showing that people who have an opportunity to show that they are not biased against, say, women or minorities, are then more likely to make a decision or express an opinion that conforms to the negative stereotype. So once you have been nice and you have basically behaved well toward a minority, then you feel justified to behave less well. So there is some kind of, of um, more credentializing uh, also on that thing. Okay, and that, that I've already mentioned, the backlash. So it's actually a very complex topic, right? I mean, if you, if you follow what psychologists tell you, um, you have to be very subtle about your policies. Okay. Now let me say a few things about the interaction with material incentives and the policy implications. So let's go back to Pigou. Okay. Pigou in 1920 said that we should tax externalities um, so, for example, the tax uh, for emitting carbon dioxide should be equal to the social cost of emitting carbon dioxide. Okay, so we should be internalizing the social cost on our societies. And um, conversely, if we do something nice, we should get a subsidy which corresponds to the social benefit of what we are doing. Now, once you do things not only by intrinsic motivation, but you do things also because you are buying self-image and social image, then you have to modify this conclusion of Pigou. And basically, what you should do is basically, if it's a subsidy, you should subtract the image value implicitly both. So basically, the new rule is a modified Pigou rule in which uh, for example, if you are subsidized for, for doing something nice, you should take away uh, the, image that you have the image value of what you have bought, which is social prestige and self-prestige. Um, you're going to tell me it's not easy to measure, and, and I will agree with that. This is image benefit. There is a market, so. Uh, there is a value for name building, uh, a chair or whatever. So there, there are actually some, uh, some measurements of that of how, how much people are willing to pay for such, to buy such image, but it's actually very complicated. The other thing is that you, um, the taxes you can show, and that's a purely theoretical prediction, um, should vary non-monotonically with the proportion of people choosing the socially responsible auction, option. So basically, is um, the strength of the reputation gained from contributing. And what you can show theoretically is that it looks like this. So it's like a U-shaped curve. Okay? Those acts are acts which only the very few uh, perform. So those are, those are heroic acts uh, that almost no one performs. And those glory is a very important driver, which means that you don't need to pay them very much because the 
motivation is already there. The glory is also a very strong motivator. At the opposite end of the spectrum, there are those acts that most people perform. You know, we may not throw some, some paper in the street or something like that. Um, and those are what we call respectable acts, and there's a great stigma attached to not doing it. Okay? And for that, you don't need monetary incentives very much. And what's going to happen, theoretically, is that what you would like to do is to provide incentives really in the middle, uh, which are acts that, you know, 50%, only 50% of the population, for example, um, practice and perform. That's where you get the most bite in terms of your monetary incentives. Okay, this is just theoretical, but let me talk about a theoretical prediction which um, has, has been confirmed empirically. Um, and that's about the interdependence of motivation. So how the monetary incentives impact the social image incentives. So um, this is a theoretical part. Look at what happens when you provide an incentive for pro-social behavior. So you give a reward of Y pounds to engage in some kind of pro-social behavior. Now, in your first course of economics, you will say, well, if you pay people more, then they will supply more, an upward sloping supply curve. And that's what happens if there is no image concern. So you get basically, this is homo economicus. Um, they, if there is no image concern, you pay more people, supply more of this uh, pro-social behavior. So for example, if you pay people to give their blood, then you, they will provide they will supply more blood, okay? But see what happens in theory when you start adding image concerns. So for example, if you make this behavior more public, you advertise it, okay? You know, it's the first observation, which is very simple, is that there is more contribution. So if you make this behavior more public, you advertise it, then people provide more pro-social behavior, as you would expect. We are, we are nicer when we are watched by others, right? Okay. Um, but something weird happens uh, when image concerns become very large. You start having a range over which homo economicus doesn't work at all. Actually, in this range, there's an interval over which you increase the reward and you decrease the supply. You have a downward sloping supply curve. That's a crowding out effect. <coughs> And the reason for that uh, is really signal extraction in the jargon of economics, but it's that people really start wondering whether this is done uh, by altruism or for the money. I mean, people start wondering whether you are giving blood because you are a good person or because you are greedy and you want the money. Okay? That's, that's the kind of thing that happens, and you may have a downward sloping supply curve. But there are two key lessons in, in that paper with Roland Benabou. The first is that contributions are higher if you increase image concern. And furthermore, the impact of incentives is higher when the behavior is private than when the behavior is public. And if it's three image concerns are too high, actually you can have an interval where there's crowding out and you get less supply when you increase incentives. Now, in an experiment by Riley, Brasha, and Mayer, uh, which is about to be published, 
they basically started from there, and they show first, and that's not new because there were also observations like this, that subjects behave more socially when they're pro-socially when they're observed. So what they do in the lab is they, the first thing is it's re-anonymous. You're in front of your computer and nobody will ever know what you do. And then they make it more public so your, your classmates or other people in the lab will know what you have chosen. Okay? Um, when you observe, you behave more pro-socially, of course. But more interestingly, the impact of material incentive is much stronger when you are unobserved. Precisely because of this, this uh, sorry, precisely because of this phenomenon is that people start wondering whether you are nice because of altruism or you are doing it for the money. Okay? So people are indeed worried that their pro-social behavior might be interpreted as a signal of greed. Um, so that, that's very important. And you know, if you go back to the hybrid car, um, you know, you would think that um, hybrid car versus an efficient furnace, for example, um, if you sub subsidize equipments which are not visible by the neighbors and the friends, that will have a strong effect. If you subsidize equipments which are highly visible, then the effect will be much smaller or even negative sometimes. Okay, so that has something to say about policy. The theory and the experiments really have something to say about the optimal policy in terms of subsidizing carbon-free equipment. Okay. Uh, the results also indicate that we should probably resist calls for permanent favorable treatment of socially responsible investment funds, green and sustainable products, and so on. Because, of course, once you start subsidizing, then you lose part of the, the image concern, which are a driver of the motivation. Okay. There are uh, a bunch of, uh, of other questions um, which, um, which I want to raise more as questions for you to do research on. The, I don't really have the answers. Um, one question that people ask is about habit formation. Uh, is pro-social behavior some kind of habit formation thing? Now, if you want to enter college in the US, it's almost compulsory uh, to do volunteering before. Now, what kind of signal is that of motivation and generosity if it's compulsory? Um, you know, you ask yourself, what's going on? Is that an habit forming thing? What is the reasoning? We need evidence on that. Same thing, we need to learn more about defaults. Um, options to opt in or opt out. We know that's very important for savings for 1K plans, for example, or organ donor statuses, which is, it's very important if you choose to, for example, uh, donate your organ, and you have to be active and say, I want to donate it, and the default is that you don't donate it, or you opt out. In principle, that should be exactly the same, yeah, you know, but it makes a difference, it makes a big difference. So same thing when we talk about pro-social behaviors like carbon offsets or giving to United Way or, or whatever, um, we have to think more about what the default option be. And obviously opting out is a much more powerful instrument than opting in. Uh, even so, from an economist point of view, they're exactly the same. It's, it's kind of, of interesting uh, what happens. Now, if you ask me what socially responsible investment does or, or you know, 
buying green products or products which haven't been manufactured by child labor and so on. I think in the end, you know, part of the virtue of that is that it provides reminders of things we, we actually prefer not to think about. And that goes back to the experiments that I, I mentioned. We don't like to think about poverty. We don't like to think about injustice. Uh, we don't like to think about the negative consequences of our actions. And um, this overall policy about socially responsible investment, green products, and so on, making them very prominent, actually one of the main channels through which they can work to induce pro-social behavior is read our memories to make it very salient that we behave in a non-pro-social way. Okay. So what I want to say, just to conclude this, this part, um, is that it's a complex topic. We economists have to, we, have, we can bring some insight. The psychologists and the sociologists also bring some insight. And we have to think about all those things if we want to design optimal policies. Optimal policies for, for LSC, optimal policies for the UK, the government, for the world, etc. Now I want to move up one, one step and talk now about uh, corporate social responsibility. I guess most of you have wondered what is CSR? I mean, it's in the newspaper all the time. Uh, business people talk about it all the time. And what is it exactly? So, um, in particular, we need to clarify its impact on the cost of capital. Is there a business case for corporate social responsibility, or is that a sacrifice of profit? And what I'm going to do is basically uh, discuss what CSR is, and I will give you three different visions of CSR. And I will talk about the challenges that CSR is going to face in the next few years. The first, the first uh, vision of CSR, and if you talk to uh, consulting, uh, consulting people, they often will tell you about win-win. You are nice, and you make more money, okay? Um, and probably you should be a bit skeptical about that, right? Uh, I don't think I've ever met a CEO who wants to be nasty just for the sake of losing money. I mean, this doesn't, doesn't <laughs> ring a bell. Um, doesn't resonate. So this win-win thing uh, as such uh, is not very, very appealing. Um, who will want to behave nastily so as to reduce profit doesn't, doesn't ring, ring a bell. Um, there is an interpretation of the win-win story, doing well by doing good, which I like much better. And um, it's basically viewing uh, managing the firm and, and the governance of a firm from a long-term perspective. So basically, um, as you know, from corporate governance and corporate finance, there are lots of reasons why managers may adopt a short-termist attitude. So firms may behave in a, in a, in a perspective which is too short-termist. And basically, we should uh, be able to, we would like to uh, force them to be more long-termist. So for example, uh, people will tell you, you should not break the implicit contract with employees. So for example, there's a downturn. You could lay off your workers. You will be making a bit more money. But don't do that because uh, that's going to be bad. Now it's going to increase your profit in the short run. 
but you know they will they will lose their motivation and in the future will have trouble attracting motivated employees and you will have a bad press similarly some people will tell you um, today you can pollute and um, basically emit um, CO2 I mean if you're in some industry you can do that and uh, that's fine um, but uh, and of course you increase your income by doing that because you don't have to take abatement measures um, but don't do that because in the future you might face environmental lawsuit and liabilities or whatnot um, or you can cut on your cost by, by take, choosing things which are a bit more dangerous you're manufacturing a car it may be a bit more dangerous if you cut on cost but don't forget that later on you may face lawsuits and, and liabilities and here the argument is basically to mix the economist argument uh, that basically you should take a long-term perspective and you should maximize your present discounted value of profit the interval profit um, and, and the other economist approach which is that uh, of course from a social perspective you should internalize externalities okay so this is an interpretation that I like much better which is that uh, the firm should take a long-term perspective and basically maximize intertemporal profit and actually discussing to some Scandinavian with some Scandinavian pension funds that's very much a position they have which is that they see themselves as long-term investors the corollary of course is that they should intervene whenever um, management is adopting a short-term policy but this is rather uncontroversial, I would say. I mean, nobody will disagree. No, at least no economists will disagree with this, um, that you should have a long-term perspective. There are biases towards short-termism for managers, but we should basically, a good governance should basically force managers to be more long-termist. Perhaps a more interesting uh, vision, and I think should be relatively uncontroversial as well, is what I will call delegated philanthropy basically viewing the firm as a channel for the expression of citizen values. And there we are back to individual social responsibility. With the idea that stakeholders are willing to sacrifice money for good causes. So investors are willing to um, sacrifice some return. Customers are willing to pay a bit more to Starbucks uh, to have uh, coffee which abides by the fair trade rules uh, employees are willing to sacrifice some wage in order to work in the firm they like I mean for example the wages in an NGO are, small, uh, are smaller of course than in some other firms and um, basically um, the idea is there is that the firms does, uh, does charity on the behalf of the stakeholders so the stakeholders are willing to pay some money lose some of their return in order to uh, help a good cause okay and that's why we have trade pro fair trade products that's why for example uh, firms may give corporate incentive for empl employee engagement community work um, and that may attract motivated employees and so on um, that's that's actually a very simple explanation and it doesn't raise specific governance issues because basically what management does is what shareholders want management to do. Okay? That doesn't create any 
headache, any nightmare with, with corporate governance because those firms are still maximizing profit. They sacrifice some profit, but they don't pay the sacrifice themselves. It's the stakeholders who pay a little bit more for a Starbucks product. They get a slightly lower rate of return on their investment. They get a lower wage to work for an NGO. The firm itself is still maximizing profit because the sacrifice is passed through to the shareholders, to the stakeholders. And this view is actually uh, consistent with, with various things. So for example, there is an actual sacrifice. I mean, there's not much data on this, but there's some empirical literature on this. For example, there's, there's a paper which shows that synth stocks, which are tobacco, alcohol, gaming, uh, actually have a higher return, which is what you would expect. I'm willing to get a s slightly smaller return because I invest in things which are not tobacco, well, alcohol, it depends what kind, um, and gaming, um, that's, uh, that's the actual sacrifice. It's exactly what the theory will predict. Um, it's also consistent with a number of observations uh, about CSR. So for example, the firms which produce final goods, of course, are more under the scrutiny of consumers. And they tend to be nicer, in a sense, because they, they, the consumer are asking for a nice behavior, right? Uh, it's also consistent on the darker side with greenwash. The fact that uh, firms tend to disseminate misleading picture of environmental friendliness and friendliness more generally. Um, looks a bit fuzzy. Um, the picture is certainly fuzzy. And the text also is fuzzy. Vision and values and <laughs> environmental, government, governance, societal, and lots of things. Now, what is this firm? Do you know what? Where is it taken from? Well, close. It's AIG. OK, this is a socially responsible firms, which has this very beautiful brochure um, on being socially responsible. That's AIG, OK? Um, let me just. So the second vision is that the firm is being nice, but it's not. Basically, it's still maximizing profit in the sense of it's doing what the shareholders are asking it to do. Uh, so it doesn't create any big corporate governance issue. And um, that's, to be, that's different from the third vision, which is a corporate philanthropy initiative. So let me call that corporate philanthropy initiatives, in which, um, in which basically um, the profit is not maximized. It's just the managers who choose uh, to help certain causes. Okay, so it's a choice of management. Independent of the firm's stakeholder demand, the management just decides to engage in philanthropy. So in that case, the profit is not maximized. I mean, it's not a demand of, ma of shareholders. It's not a demand of customers or workers. And that has attracted criticisms from both left and right. Uh, there is a very, on the right side of the spectrum, there is a a very, very famous article by Milton Friedman in 1970, which basically says, don't do charity with others' money. Okay? This is not your money. Do charity with your own money, not with others' money, basically. And if you take this view, basically, corporate social responsibility is close to theft. Um, on the left side of the political spectrum, Robert Reich said, no, no, this is no good either. Do you really want CEOs to do uh, public policy, uh, the firms will not substitute for the state. 
And in either case, you have to ask yourself, how do we ensure that the money goes to the right people? So, um, and presumably, and I'm, I'm not going to have much time to talk about that, presumably, uh, if this is going to be viable, it must be the case that either it's unobserved, so nobody is observing that, or um, there's some entrenchment of management because if management reduces profit by giving to certain causes, uh, then of course um, the shareholders are not going to be happy about that, and that creates that creates a need for entrenchment, which we don't like. That's going to raise issues about the financing of the firm, and that raises issue about the managerial accountability, which is that if managers have other missions than maximize profit, they will have many missions, and as we know from the economic literature, many missions, too many missions is no mission at all. Um, so that creates some prime uh, with governance. Now, to, to be fair, it's very hard to disentangle visions one and two, two and three. Um, one, I'm sorry, one and two and three. Um, so sometimes you have some policy which is long-termist, uh, but also can, could be viewed as basically um, helping a good cause. So let me, for example, give, give, you, give you one. Um, imagine that you invest in carbon-free equipment today, uh, which are unprofitable today because your carbon is not taxed. You can emit carbon and it's not taxed, okay? But tomorrow is going to be profitable, okay? Due to CO2 taxation, because we expect and we hope that tomorrow CO2 will be taxed much more than it is taxed today. Um, are you basically um, countering short-termism, and um, or are you engaging costly pro-social behavior? Yeah, I ask as the CEO of an American firm, um, was well known for having providing employees with incentives, financial incentives to invest in their division uh, in carbon-free equipments, why he was doing that. And of course he said, well, it's not only being nice, it's also because you know, tomorrow, um, uh, tomorrow there will be CO2 taxation and I want people to invest in carbon-free equipment today, which they might not do because they themselves might be engaged in short-termism. They just want to maximize the current profit in order to keep their job or to get another job elsewhere. Okay? So it's, it's actually very complicated to know um, which prevails sometimes. Okay, so let me now talk about the challenges for delegated philanthropy. I think there are yeah, the two main visions is long-term perspective, that's completely non-controversial. And there is an in interesting vision, which is delegated philanthropy. So basically, the firms do it on behalf of the stakeholders. There's a social demand. People want to be generous. There's a social demand for being associated with products and firms, um, which are socially responsible. Now, as an economist, the first question you have to ask is, this fine. You know, as long as we don't lose much money. You know, if I pay five cents more for my Starbucks uh, coffee, no, that's not the end of the world. I have the impression of being nice, it's only five cents. Who cares? Um, if I get a rate of return, which is, you know, 0.1% less than the market rate of return because I've invested in, in some fund which doesn't invest in, 
in, in gambling and in, in weapons and so on, yeah, that's fine. I, I have a good image. But if I start paying twice as much or getting half the return, will I still do that? So the question is, as, for example, it's not CSR, it's socially responsible investment becomes more popular, or the return on green funds um, decreases, um, will there be more free riding? Will people still contribute? Standard economist question. Um, the other thing I want to mention is some kind of challenges that we, we have to think about. Um, one challenge is information. Okay. Now, how do we know this firm is a nice firm? You know, don't read the brochure of AIG. That's not what you want to do. The thing we want to do is to know what AIG redoes, what Nike redoes, and Nike redoes, and so on. Um, so you need rating agencies, and we have a bunch of those already. Um, we have seen in other fields that rating agencies are not always reliable, <laughs> but until now, those have been relatively reliable. Um, we have to think about how to aggregate, um, because there are many, many dimensions of socially responsible behavior. So imagine that you close a plant, a coal plant, which emits a lot of, uh, with a lot of CO2 emissions. So you do something nice to society. But then you are laying off some workers, so that's not nice. Now, how do you aggregate those two? You know, and how is a rating agency going to aggregate those two? And you could say the same thing with nuclear power. You know, everybody, whether you like nuclear power or not, there are benefits and costs in terms of the environment, right? How do you weigh those? Uh, offsets um, and many other things. So you have to, to wonder about you are going to aggregate. And you know, again, this is a very important topic. So if you want to give it some thought and do some research on this topic, and I would strongly advise you to, to help us with that because I don't really have the answer for that. Um, relative versus absolute performance. Okay. Um, do I want to invest in firms that pollute a lot but, uh, but try to reduce their pollution, so kind of best in class? So I look at uh, coal plants, for example. Uh, I don't want to invest in those because they, there's a lot of CO2 involved, but I might still in, invest in those which try to reduce their CO2, right? Uh, is that what I should be doing for incentive purposes or, or not? Okay. And here is a central issue I want to insist on, and it's also an important, uh, very important point. Actually, it's more important than the reliance on, on rating agencies. Um, it's basically that corporate social responsibility is going to inherit the cost and benefit of the democratic process. Okay? And CEOs and rating agencies, just like politicians, are likely to pander to their customers and also, in the case of CEOs to politicians who have regulatory power. So basically, we are going to do the popular thing. And let me argue that's not always the right thing to do. Doing the popular thing may not be the right thing to do. So for example, take an example. Um, take an NGO, which basically confiscates some ivory which was poached from poachers, and then resells this ivory. Now, we as economists will say, this is a great thing. You confiscate the ivory, you put it back on the market. It's very nice because 
by putting it back on the market, you lower the market prices for ivory, and therefore you reduce the incentive of poachers to basically kill elephants, right? So it's, it's actually a very good policy if you confiscate the ivory to put it back on the market so as to depress the prices and you reduce future poaching. That's a nice thing. Now, if you ask 99% of the population, will say it's disgusting. You should, you should not be doing that, okay? So this NGO will not get much charity money, I'm sure, right? That's, that gives you an example of, um, uh, of this kind of issue. Um, if you think about genetic, genetically modified organisms, uh, it's pretty clear, you know, whatever your opinion is on the topic, that uh, the average opinion on the topic is, doesn't rely on much information. That has improved, fortunately, over the recent years, but it's really not something that people have a lot of good information about. Let me give you another example. If you think about Pigou, okay, um, if someone is not taxed for carbon today and pollutes, we should basically punish this firm by not buying its product and not investing in this firm because it's disgusting, okay? But let's assume now there is, that this firm becomes subject to pollution permits and it's costly to buy those pollution permits. And there is Pigovian taxation, maybe modified by what I said, but it's Pigovian taxation. So basically the firm internalizes social costs of its pollution. And if it doesn't reduce pollution, it's, it just means that it's too costly to do so. Now, the right approach would be for the people, the stakeholders who look at this firm is to say, fine, it has paid its due. It, it has paid the Pigovian tax. We should not punish it anymore because it has paid the social cost of its pollution. Well, I'm willing to bet that when it happens, there will still be a double penalty, uh, which is that not only will be paying the tax, but on top of that, the stakeholders will be upset at the firm. Another example of the prime of democracy is going to be highly dependent on framing issues. So for example, if you think about a firm building a new plant in a less developed country, it all depends on how you frame it. If you say it's, it's to help a poor country develop, then probably people will like it. Or if you say, well, it's to minimize labor cost, it's very unlikely that people will like it. So the framing is also extremely important. And that's something I want to emphasize we have to think about because basically socially responsible investment, corporate social responsibility and so on is a form of democracy. And it has all the benefits of democracy but it also has all the costs. In particular, all the taboos, all the lack of information that you can get in a standard democracy. Okay. Okay. Um, let me mention a few other things that you may want to think about, and that uh, I can tell you pension funds which are engaged in socially responsible behavior also worry about is a way they should, they should intervene. So if, very typically you have the kind of situation like this. So from, from various uh, groups or United Nations or something, you learn that a firm is doing something which is not very nice, okay? Child labor, pollution, whatnot. Those pension funds which are socially responsible are going to engage in monitoring and will start a dialogue with the firms. Very typically, they will go and see the CEO and say, why don't you change? The CEO will answer the call and say, 
uh, it's costly. And um, there will be this dialogue, there will be pressure. Either the firm complies, the firm complies and then um, that's the end of the story, or the firm doesn't want to comply and then very typically it's going to be excluded from the list. So for example, the pension fund is not going to buy shares in this firm anymore. Now usually, by the way, it's a very small number. The, one, the numbers I've seen for the Scandinavian funds are usually you know, 30 or 50 firms which are excluded out of 5,000. It's actually usually a very small number. Um, there is a debate about whether you should have clean hands. So whenever you see something wrong, you should basically go away. Or whether you should engage, which is prob probably more productive. So you, you can put pressure on the CEO to change the policy. But it's politically more sensitive because while you're engaging, you're still investing in those firms. And you know, people might be upset at you. Um, whether you should be in using a negative criterion, which is basically what's happening right now for most of them, which is that you exclude the bad ones, or you create a fund just with the best in class, positive screening. And then there's this thing about whether you want to publish, um, you are going to publish exclusion, but what about the companies which are currently facing engagement? So companies you have trouble with, and you are trying to convince to change their policy. And do you want to publish those, right? It's not clear. I mean, just think about it in terms of the incentives it creates for the firm. Um, so those are the kind of questions that you want to think about. Nobody has done any research on that. I mean, basically nobody has done any research on most of the topics I've been talking about, but we would like to know the answer. So let me wrap up um, and go back to Adam Smith and Pigou. Um, as you know, the invisible end of the market and the visible one of the state are well understood. There are 200 years of economics in particular on those two things. But the decentralized correction of externalities and inequality is much less well understood. On CSR, corporate social responsibility, I've told you that there are three understandings. And I'll let you choose the one you like best. And probably it's a combination of all. The first is that you want the firm to take a long-term perspective, as opposed to just to maximizing short-term profit, and this is a startup prescription of an economist. The second is that um, of delegated philanthropy, where the firm is basically doing charity on behalf of workers, on behalf of consumers, on behalf of investors, and is still doing what the shareholders want, want to do, want the firm to do. And the third is a corporate philanthropy initiative by the major who is going to contribute to some good cause. Um, the latter, the latter two, two understandings involve individual social responsibility and raise a question, if the state fails, so PIGU is out, who from the stakeholders or management is best placed to decide what's right? You know, we usually think that it's the government who decides what's right um, here is the stakeholders or the management who decide what's right for society and who has an incentive to behave pro-social. I try to convince you that pro-social behavior, um, like charitable giving, socially responsible investment, buying green goods, is driven by a complex mix of motives. 
intrinsic motivation, the desire to do good and help, uh, material incentives like a tax break or a reward, and finally, social and self-esteem concern, which basically, when we do something nice, we are trying to define what kind of person we are uh, in for ourselves and for our neighbors and family and, and friends. Um, these three motives are, they vary, of course, across people. So some people are intrinsically motivated, are more generous than others. Some people are more image concerned than others. Um, and they are interdependent. So for example, I showed you how uh, monetary incentives may interfere with social image and self-image concerns. And that's something we have to keep in mind when we design policy. Um, I've, I've argued that um, the importance of social and self-signaling concerns are good and bad news. They are definitely good news because those image concerns provide powerful cheap lever for intervention up to a point because then there is some kind of over-justification effect. Um, it may create, make other intervention counterproductive, so it may um, make, for example, financial incentives counterproductive under some circumstances, especially if the behavior is very public. Um, the pursuit of social and self-esteem is a positional good. It's a zero-sum game. And there is some kind of distortion of actions, pro-social action, toward the most visible thing, which is something that policy has to correct. There is an interesting alley I haven't talked about, uh, which is PPPs, private-public partnerships, um, such as, for example, the Gavi Alliance. Um, oops. Sorry. Um, that's not public-private um, partnerships such as the Gavi Alliance. I don't know how many of you know the Gavi Alliance. is basically an organization which tries to provide vaccines uh, to the poor country and also to develop orphan drugs, which will not be developed otherwise. So it's, it's, it's both a production and a research organization. And it's a PPP because behind Gavi, the Gavi Alliance, there is the United Nations, um, WHO, there is a UNICEF, the World Health Organization, and there are private donors. So, for example, give Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation, gave $1.5 billion to this alliance. And this is actually a pretty efficient operation. Um, and basically, this kind of operation maintains the public involvement, basically, uh, social choice rules, um, and combines that with private sector resources, efficiency, and validation. And it's actually quite a good thing. I think that's something we have to explore more. So try to combine the public intervention and then get validation and efficiency and money also coming from the private sector. And I'm very, very much in favor of that kind of, of approach. Um, just to conclude, I purposely offered a cautious view of socially responsible investment and corporate social responsibility. I think there are numerous challenges, but don't be, misbe don't be mistaken. Uh, I'm not reasonably, I'm a bit about it. Uh, I think we have to know exactly what the limits are in order to design our policy better. And I, I've emphasized quite a lot those limits. Um, and that's something that uh, I'm a bit about it because I think it's, it's a nice way to 
complement and supplement the public money which is involved um, in correcting externalities and correcting the wealth income redistribution. Caring about the environment, the welfare of people in distant countries is a normal good. The richer our societies, the higher the demand for socially responsible behavior. And what we really need is to lever uh, altruism in the right way. So we need to take into account the psychology of it and the sociology of it in order to do the right thing. Now, as I said earlier, we the social scientists, and I in particular, we have been too much guided by the ants, the invisible and visible ants of Pigou and, and Smith. And we have paid too little attention to socially responsible behavior. And I hope that this lecture, despite its very modest uh, scope, is going to inspire you to encourage you to give it more thought and hopefully to do some, some research on it. And thank you very much. You know, all this talk about uh, <clears throat> feeling good by doing right uh, reminds me of the reporter who went along to one of Barack Obama's golfing companions and said, what kind of man is the new president? And the golfer said, well, he said, I was out with him one day and he was doing really badly. And in this hole, he had 11 strokes. So uh, I told him on the green and I said to him, how many did you have? And Barack Obama said, 11. And that was what went down on the card. Wow, what a straight guy. I think this tells you less about the honesty of uh, presidents than about the honesty of golfers. Um, but um, I think I should open the floor and invite you all to uh, ask questions. Talking about internationally, CSR internationally, do you see a binding code of conduct ever taking place? And in the case of developing countries, like Latin America, for example, where there seems to be a concentration of resources in hands of private individuals and where CSR could be very helpful, not to substitute the state, but maybe to complement its role. How to handle corruption? Well, um, there are inst international standards. Uh, actually, um, you have some uh, United Nations as a global compact. and. Uh, there are a bunch of standards relative to human rights, uh, labor standards. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to, <laughs> we didn't call you, to continue on this uh, speech. Uh, human rights, labor standards, anti-corruption. Uh, you see, I mean, you are, here you are. Businesses should work. In, in the so the, um, but all those are consensual things. I mean, actually, this is, this is a very hard topic because for two reasons. The first is that people differ in their value. I mean, corruption, nobody will approve corruption. But there are other things which, where people would have disagreements. And um, also, there is this information stuff I talk about, which are the taboos. I must say that people I've met both in rating agencies and in, in pension funds, for example, will behave uh, responsibly, or they pretend they behave responsibly, um, actually are very cautious. and not too demagogic, uh, I think. Um, now, corruption, um, actually, this is something which is pretty consensual, that we should not engage in corruption. Uh, in LDCs, even if we are not, um, not observed, if, if we are not being caught. And I think the answer to that is basically having 
there's actually there are international organizations which deal with corruption and try to measure to have indices of countries and also try to make firms shameful when they engage in corruption. Of course, we don't always have the information by definition, but basically use the pressure, both with respect to the countries and with respect to the corporations, uh, make the information very public so that people don't invest in those countries and don't invest in the firms which corrupt the people in the LDCs. I don't see any other way of doing it. Um, the, that's, that's, I mean, you can always, I mean, you can always tax, of course, try to tax the firms who do that. Uh, but you know, the governments don't always have the information and the hard evidence for that. And clearly, clearly, that's an issue. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your your question, but that's uh, the bottom line. There's a question from up top. Hi, I'm Vardan uh, Friedeski. I'm studying in environment. So I've got a question about your framework in developing countries. You seem to back a lot your framework on democracy. How do you see that work when stakeholders are not actually moving in democratic countries, so don't really rely on these values? Well, I don't know if they don't rely on those values. I mean, as I said at the end, I think uh, environment or pro-social behavior and something like that is no more good. If you are richer, it's much easier to, to start thinking about the environment, and it's much, much easier to start thinking about, uh, about generosity, in a sense. And one of my worries is that the, with the recession we are going to, to have, I think things having to do with the environment and all those things are going to disappear for a couple of years. Not disappear, but it's, it's going to, to be reduced, obviously. Um, and for LDCs, I'm not sure there is less demand for the environment. I'm not sure there is less demand for for uh, redistribution uh, intrinsically. I just think that those are poor countries and uh, not necessarily. There are very few people, and many of those countries don't have middle classes, right? So you just have a few very rich people who sometimes engage in generous behavior, but not often. They often put their money abroad. And you know, the Bill Gates of this, of this world, they, don't, they are not always in the LDCs. Um, now, I want to emphasize, and it's a bit of a digression, digression compared to your question, which is being generous is one thing. Uh, doing, giving your money is one thing. Another thing is really making sure that your money is used efficiently. And I don't want to, to be too nice to the Gates Foundation, but I think that's something they have done. They've said, fine, we give money to a foundation, but we want this foundation to be useful. Because there is a tendency also, that's one of the bias I haven't talked about, there is also a tendency to say, well, you know, I've given this amount of money. And actually, I don't really care. You know, if I'm giving, I talk a little bit about that. You know, I'm giving to Harvard, and Harvard has 35 billion endowment. I lost 10 billion, so 25 billion endowment. Um, now, is my marginal dollar important? The answer is probably no, right? But I've given. Um, and I think there is a tendency, basically, to give to causes without really looking at whether the marginal impact is important. And something I like about the Gates Foundation is that it's run like an enterprise. It's like run like a, like a corporation. And it, it's trying to make sure, uh, at least right now, I don't know if it's going to last, but it's, it's trying to make sure that actually the goods are delivered, the overhead costs are small, and so on. And you know, we, we are doing the right thing. Yes, here in the front. 
Hello. Um, I have a question regarding public policy uh, and the current crisis in the financial sector. Some people argue that um, some companies in the financial sector were not behaving in the social responsible way uh, as, as a large extent. Um, you gave some comment about how public policy might be adjusted uh, when we look into social responsible behavior. Uh, what do you think about the answers uh, of policymakers to the crisis with this respect? I, I do think, I mean, don't get me going on the financial crisis. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that really proves that you cannot just rely on socially responsible behavior. I mean, that we knew in a sense. We, we are economists, we know that you need some other incentives than just socially, being socially responsible. I and mean, when people can steal from the cookie jar, they do, they do that very often. And we have seen that uh, many times. Um, they have completely abused prudential regulations. They have, diverted a lot of public money, they have diverted a lot of private money too in terms of returns. Uh, I have in mind the hedge fund, the investment banks and many others and, and the banks themselves. And you know, one of the main uh, failures, I know people talk about the financial system becoming crazy, I would talk about regulation having become crazy. I don't think regulators, they have a massive uh, failure of regulation uh, lately. And you know, I could explain to you in many, many details why whether the case, but I, I do think that uh, prudential regulation has failed. Uh, there's been a bilateral capture uh, of, of the regulation. People have taken advantage of that. They had huge material incentive to do so, and they have done it. So you cannot just ask people to be nice. When the stakes are big, you know that's not going to work. Prudential regulation, is trying to correct a market failure, which is that there is depositor insurance money at stake or, and, and taxpayer money at stake as well because of bailouts. And therefore, um, you should regulate those financial actors uh, to avoid the externalities on the others, and that has completely failed. So, so I'd, if we don't correct regulation, I can, I can bet that in five years, for two years, nothing is going to happen. Uh, people are going to be very cautious for the next two years, but in five years you have another crisis just the same with people gambling on the yield curve and basically transferring all the risk uh, of balance sheet and hiding them and having cross-exposure between investment banks and hedge funds and, and banks and, and you can go on and on and the same incentive will still be around and uh, people will take advantage of that. So, so I see of socially responsible behavior really as a complement uh, to existing policies, certainly not as a substitute. That would be a real interest. One last question from the top back. Um, you talked about being upbeat, and you've, you've got up there the United Nations Global Compact, and I was just thinking about the number of organizations that have actually committed to the Global Compact, which I believe is in the region of about 5,000, of which only 2,500 are multinational corporations. <coughs> And bearing that in mind with information from, from other initiatives such as the um, Forestry Sustainability Council, which only covers about 5% of the world's forests, is there a problem that really these initiatives just aren't covering enough organizations? I'm sorry, that, that the... Uh... That these initiatives just aren't covering enough organizations globally. So, in fact, we see the same organizations who have 
a commitment to CSR responding to the same initiatives and, in, and a large number of organizations are going unchecked and ungoverned? Well, I think most organizations in our countries at least have some kind of uh, uh, corporate social responsibility report, for example. Um, now, whether they are doing it is another thing. That's why we need rating agencies. I mean, all companies basically are claiming that they are socially responsible. Should we believe them? Certainly not. Um, and what we need is good rating agencies uh, to discipline them. And again, that's not going to substitute for policy intervention. So I will not, for example, you know, I'm in favor of, of having a fairly large uh, tax or a uh, small number of, of permits for CO2. Uh, and I will certainly not rely on companies just to reduce their CO2 or countries to reduce their CO2 to like this. Uh, we need both. But uh, I just, it's too easy for a company to, to say they, they implement those, those things. Uh, we, we really need to, to have uh, independent observers who are going to say, well, they behave according to that. And we, we do have them to some extent, the rating agencies. And as far as I can tell, probably you have more information, but uh, they are doing, it for the moment, a decent job. It's not like CDOs, for CDOs. Uh, they are doing a much better job. Um, now, they're doing a good job if they respond to questions about facts. You know, is this company basically using child labor in country X? That's, that's a fact. Are they using it or not? And they can go and see, and they, they may make mistakes sometimes, but it's relatively easy. Now, if you, if you want a judgment as to whether the company is really socially responsible, you, know, you, need, to, you need to get more into the economics of the matter. And that's more subjective, and then you face the taboos and the informational primes, which are, which are difficult. But, and I hope you, you'll have an answer to that soon. Well, thank you, Jean. And uh, it, I'm sure there are still lots of questions, but you're free to join us uh, at the reception, which is open to everyone here, on the fifth floor in the senior dining room, which begins now. And uh, it only remains there for me to thank John on behalf of us all for a wonderful course lecture. Thank you for thank the you. honor. Thank you very much.